0: Welcome to the True Voice podcast with your host, LaShawn
1: Smith. Hey, welcome to True Voice, where we learn more about today through stories from amazing people. This is season three. I'm your host, LaShawn Smith. Here on True Voice, we talk with people who have remarkable stories that entertain, teach and offer a human perspective on how today's most pressing topics remain deeply connected to our past. I hope you enjoy today's episode with Gail Boyd. Gail, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me, though,
1: John. Yeah, be a fantastic conversation. I like to start way at the beginning. So we're going to go rewind early on in your, your journey. And uh, we might bounce around a little bit, but that's where we'll, we will start. Here's something, and I want to um, probe at this. Early on, your mother says, you need to pick something to be even if you change your mind. Right. And Mm -hmm. that's at like four years old. I don't know what a four year old knows. So at eight years old, you decide you're going to be a lawyer at 12. You decide you're going to be an entertainment lawyer. Yes. What did your mom think about your commitment to becoming an attorney?
0: She was less impressed about what I chose as she was more impressed that I did pick something. At four, because her position was she she was a high school dropout, and we used to laugh about it all the time because she dropped out to go work for the Kraft family, the Kraft cheese people, Mm -hmm. uh, cleaning house. And I always asked her, "Why would you drop out of high school to go do that?" She said, "Well, I saw this white suit that I wanted to buy, and I needed some money, so I dropped out to make the money to buy this suit." Years later, I asked her, I said. Did you ever regret not finishing high school just so you could buy a white silk suit? And she said, you didn't see the suit. (laughs) 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 But the lesson for her, though, was that she missed out on a lot of things that she could have done had she finished high school and gone to college. And so it was always her philosophy is pick a lane. Just tell me what it is you want to do. Now, you can change your mind because you're young. And I'll permit that. But you always have to know where you're going, what you're going toward. So I just remember saying, I want to be a lawyer. Don't ask me why. I don't know if Perry Mason was even out at that point. I had never met a lawyer in my life. But I said, I want to be a lawyer. And She said, OK, great. Now you have to go to the library. You have to start reading about I mean, not at four. But of course, when I did start reading, she was like, go to the library, get books about lawyers and things like that. So she gave me like a trajectory. By the time I was 12, and it might have been a little bit later, maybe 13 or so, I remember Florence Ballard from The Supremes. And I also remember Johnny Mathis had a manager who had stolen quite a bit of his money. I remember that being like a big thing. And I said to myself, well, who helps these people? I had no idea what entertainment law was, but it was something very unfair about somebody who was sort of world-renowned but not being protected. And I said, "Okay, when I get to be a lawyer, I'm going to be a lawyer who helps musicians."
1: You can and do And that's it the how it right got started. Yes. That's fantastic. Now, you and your dad found a bond over music. He was a he was a DJ. I yes. think that's when they actually called it a disc jockey. How was that different from what a DJ is today? Cuz, you know, the youngins may not know that.
0: So, actually, what the record companies called people like my dad were record turners because they had nightclubs in Chicago, from Chicago, and in Chicago, the record turners or DJs, as they became known to be, played albums in the clubs and people would come out and dance and hear the albums. And then they would go up to my father. His name was Edward, but they called him QT, the blues fool. Okay. And they they would go up and say, QT, who is that you're playing? And he would say, oh, that's Shirley Scott and Stanley Tarantino or whatever, because he loved jazz. What would happen back then is that people who would go to the clubs would hear that, find out what the DJ was playing, and then go to record stores, remember those, <laughs> and buy the record the next day. And mm-hmm. so that's how hits were made. So record companies had promotions people who would go out to all the clubs and actually give the DJs their albums so that they could play them, so that they could promote them. So that's how, I mean, so my mother and father were divorced. My father didn't know what to do, you know, a a eight year old, seven year old. So he just talked about jazz all the time. Mm -hmm. And he would test me, you know, he would say things like, who's that on trumpet? I'd say Fats Navarro, wrong, Blue Mitchell. And we would just go back and forth like that. And he told me a lot about jazz and that's how I got the bug.
1: That's excellent. And two things there, first, I'm trying to visualize when when I hear the word club, it means something different probably than what these clubs oh, that's were like true. what's the vibe? are you you know is it dancing? are you there to be seen? you're lounging like like what's the energy and the vibe in one of these clubs?
0: I haven't been to the modern day clubs, so when I think clubs, I still think about Dark, smoky, classy places where the men were dressed with suits and ties and the women had their their finest on and you could get what they call a setup, which would be your ice and your bottle of whatever. And then you would sit there and, you know, everyone was smoking cigarettes and you would dance to the DJ's music and then there was always a photographer around who would take a picture and okay. i have pictures of my mother sitting in nightclubs like that and so that's those were the kinds of clubs i'm talking about they weren't they didn't serve dinner it really was a cocktail lounge so to speak but you could dance and listen to the latest music
1: okay now that sounds much more upscale than today's clubs and <laughs> okay. it- it sounds like it's still hitting on some of the same psychological drives where the photographer is, you know, that's the Instagram, right? Now you get ah, to these things. Yes,
0: you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you're Look right. at
1: us, we doing it. The other piece I was going to hit on there, with your dad having access to, you know, I'm assuming some of these records from the labels and, and others, you know, did you ever run across someone who was maybe more obscure or just, you know, wasn't really getting promoted that you're like, oh, I really like this one?
0: no. Actually, I didn't. Uh, The people that my father would always talk to me about were pretty much in the mainstream of popular music at that time. Mm -hmm. And um, I just remember him talking about John Coltrane. And how much he loved John Coltrane. My father also had a a, a record of Ray Charles playing saxophone, Ooh. which a lot of people don't realize that he played saxophone as well. So that was kind of obscure. I mean, there are a lot of people who didn't know that he did that. But Lambert Hendricks and Ross, he would talk about. They were kind of in the popular mainstream. But one of the people he talked about an awful lot was John Coltrane because he said that was the quartet. Mm-hmm. It was it was Jimmy Garrison. It was McCoy Tyner. It was Elvin Jones and, and John Coltrane. And they were just at the top of their game, my father would say. So at, at high school, at 15 years old, I heard that John Coltrane Quartet was coming in town. My mother and father are divorced. So whenever I needed a few extra hours, I would tell my father I was going home. And I would tell my mother I was staying with my father. Uh, and look before at you. they saw <laughs> So by the time they sorted it all out, I had a couple extra hours I could do some stuff. Right. So, you know, I've got my book bag, my bobby socks. I go to this club and I ask the owner if I can see John Coltrane. It's like 530 in the afternoon. I don't know. Mm-hmm. What I'm doing. And he said, well, no, I mean, you're a teenager. You can't come in. It's You know, it's, this is for adults. And I said, I don't want to drink. I don't have any money anyway. <laughs> I just want to see John Coltrane. He said, "Okay, come back at eight o'clock and I'll let you sit at the top of the stairs because it seems to me now that it was kind of a a downstairs kind of club environment. He said, I'll let you sit at the top of the stairs. And that's what I did. And I heard John Coltrane and that and the quartet. And they played one song for like 40 minutes and I was hooked. So by that time, not only did I want to be an entertainment lawyer, I wanted to be a lawyer who represented
1: jazz musicians. I love it. Now you're from Chicago, right? Yes. What part of the city? Well,
0: I was born in Lagrange, which are the suburbs. Then I lived on the South side. Then my mom and dad divorced and we moved into public housing on the West side of Chicago. By the time I went to school and graduated from law school, I was living on the North side. So I've lived on every side of the city.
1: And then as you think about, you know, you know, let's just kind of focus on your teenage years, mm-hmm. you know, what's the favorite song, the soundtrack of of a summer that you remember that like this song had an imprint on you, jazz or not?
0: Beachwood, four, five, seven, eight, nine. You can call me up and have a date any old time. I don't remember who that is, but
1: <laughs> that's okay. the era
0: of Motown for sure. yes. Although I was really getting more into jazz, even as a teenager, but all the Motown, you know, Mm -hmm. that was definitely the soundtrack of my life. But that Beachwood Four is a song that I can still remember. All
1: right. We're going to have to go find that one. Okay, Coltrane, back to him. uh, He was a saxophonist. Were there any instruments that spoke to you more than others?
0: I think probably saxophone is still one of my favorite instruments, even right now today. I represent a young woman, uh, Lakeisha Benjamin, who plays saxophone, and I get transported whenever I hear her play. I do love pianists, I have to say, but saxophone has a special place for me.
1: Mm, Yes. Broadly, when we think about jazz, it has a Mm -hmm. number of attributes. It embraces collaboration, diversity, freedom, innovation, these are things that most of us would want in a healthy society. Where have you seen the intersection of jazz or music more broadly used as a tool for activism?
0: So, as I've been saying, I'm a child of the 60s, and there was a lot of tumult and and distress and unrest and everything in the 60s. I remember my son, Arif, telling me one time that he wishes he had been born so that he could go through the 60s because it just seemed like such a a heady, exciting, on the one hand, but distressing time. And I remember calling him not too long ago and said, hey, guess what, son, you're going through it now.
1: (laughs) You got your wish.
0: (laughs) You got your wish. And so to bring it back to music, I really think that musicians, and I might be a little prejudiced, but I think jazz musicians really tell the story of what we're going through. So in the 60s, when the four girls were bombed at the church in Alabama, John Coltrane wrote Alabama, and he wrote it to the cadence of a Martin Luther King speech, if Mm. if anybody knows. I mean, that's kind of inside baseball, like most people wouldn't know that. But so I can't hear Alabama and not think about that time. The same thing with Max Roach and Aminata Mosika, Abby Lincoln when they did the Freedom Now Suite. Those were things, I mean, musicians really do tell us how they're feeling about what we're going through. And so all the things, all the attributes that you talked about music and jazz in particular are true, but there's another one and that's democracy. Like jazz is an ultimate democratic form of music. And that is that everybody plays the head, everybody plays. But then each individual musician gets a chance to shine. But then everybody comes back together and they play it out. Mm -hmm. And that's what we all really strive for, actually. And so that's the other reason that I really love music and particularly jazz. But I do like a lot of classical music, too. But the reason that I like jazz over classical is is the freedom that you talked about. No one will play the same as another one, even if they have the exact same instrument. You can give somebody a piano and then they can play and another person can come and they can say, well, how did they get those notes out of the same piano? Because it's just that individual, but it's also very democratic. So right now we're, we need music and I'm, I'm part of a coalition, the jazz coalition, where we commissioned 50 jazz musicians To write music about the racial unrest and the social injustice right now. So we're going to have 50 compositions from different jazz musicians that deal with telling us how they feel and really kind of telling the world what it feels like to go through this.
1: When will that um, be available and through what channels?
0: We're not sure yet. What we did, I'm part of a group, Jazz Coalition, there are three of us. It's me, it's Danny Melnick, and Bryce Rosenblum. And we came together during the pandemic, and we first raised money to commission 50 artists to write about the pandemic and what they felt about going through this sort of isolation. And in the midst of that, we had the George Floyd murder. And Mm. so then we raised some more money and commissioned 50 more artists to write about the social unrest. So we have now gotten about two-thirds of those commissions back. We've gotten it and some people have premiered them live. So our next step now is to to raise more money so that we can decide if we want to do vinyl and sell it as special sets or what. We're we're still in the air about what we're going to do when we get all of the the songs. But it's going to be the soundtrack of our lives right now.
1: Wow. That sounds fantastic. Before we move off of that, what do you think makes a collective of jazz artists who come together to do all those things, which is, again, very powerful, what do they possess in mindset or approach or anything that is different than what you know we have as we move through our life day to day where we can't seem to get along as individuals like like you know clearly there's a model that says hey this can work and look at some of these examples in places like uh, a group of jazz artists why can't regular folks pull off the same thing
0: there's an there's an element of appreciating individuality i think and not feeling that you have to do things the way I'm doing it. I think that's the other reason I really dig being around jazz musicians as a, because they don't expect you to do anything in a certain way. They kind of take what you're bringing and make something out of it. So, no matter what you're bringing to the song, it might not even be your song, it might be the leader of the band's song. But everybody's going to bring their own thing to it, and that's. It, wouldn't it be great if we all did that? If we didn't expect people to to act in a certain way, but we just gave room, we gave space for people to just be who they are. That would be really great. And if we didn't, if we could take the whole notion of any kind of supremacy out of it, you know, if we could just accept everyone where they are, which is more able to happen on the bandstand than I think in life. Because if we're dealing with an element of society, we're also dealing with an element of white supremacy. And I always say that white supremacy has like five fingers to it. And whatever finger you knock down tells you how far away you are from being acceptable in white supremacy. So if you are not white, I'm taking my fingers down to just Mm -hmm. show you, if you're not male, if you're able-bodied, and I consider that I am, if you're not Christian... And then if you are not, what's the one I'm missing? Oh, I said male. So it's five. And I'm forgetting one. Able-bodied, Christian, white, male. Oh, heterosexual. Okay. So if you are not any of those things, you can see how many fingers go down for how many people. Then it's impossible for you to get along and write a song or play a song or even live Mm -hmm. in life. Mm-hmm. It's impossible, because if I'm expecting you to meet all five of those and you only have three, and I'm set on you meeting all five, we got a problem from the beginning. but if there were if there was none of that, and if I said to whoever it is, whatever your pronouns, whatever your gender, whatever your race, let's just make this music. If we could do that in life, certainly things would be better. That's why I like hanging out with jazz musicians. There's more of that. Not that we don't have our problems because we do. You know, there are there are female jazz musicians who feel that they're not getting due as male jazz musicians. And there are some male jazz musicians who say, you know, she plays really good for a woman, but, you know, she's not. So there's mm. there's some of that. But I see less of it in the milieu that I like to hang out in.
1: Yeah. No, I love uh, the the metaphor is so clear there that. Yeah, you know, your phrase. Let's just make the music. That's kind of like let's just just get to it, right? Instead of making yes. everyone trying to assimilate or you know, you know, doubling down on compliance. It's like, all right, this is who you brought to the table. Let's riff on that.
0: That's right. Whatever it is, so bring it. Bring it to the table. Let's see what happens. And there yeah. are jazz musicians who have done that. There are jazz musicians who have said, "I have a sketch." But you tell me what you want to do in this part of the music, and then they end up. It you know, it's what it is. You know, you can't say it's great or bad. But everybody had a say in it, and I kind of like people who think like that.
1: Wow, there you go. There's a uh, a blueprint for managing society through the lens of uh, what jazz artists have already figured out. Yes, I want to connect to another genre. So hip hop is obviously influenced, uh, even birthed by jazz what parallels do you see between jazz and hip-hop now that hip-hop is starting to mature right it's not the mm-hmm. the, the newest thing right and right. Uh, it, as it starts to mature what are some of the parallels you're seeing you know through the history of, of jazz that you know maybe folks who are into hip-hop can learn from
0: I really wish I knew a little bit more about it to speak on it intelligently because I, I don't and I don't know if I feel competent to to talk about what's happening now. But what I can say is that when I saw it starting, I saw a lot of parallels to jazz. Mm. I saw that it was something that was not accepted by the broader society. I saw it as something where people were banding together to say, this is us. This is what we're going to do. That's what bebop did in jazz. You know, it kind of took it from swing music. And then musicians got together and said, we're going to band together because we're hearing something different. And we want to We want to do that. We don't want to adhere to what's been going on. So what happening now, I don't know if I'm competent to talk about, but I certainly related to hip-hop when it was coming on, because I viewed that it was not just music, it was a lifestyle. You know, it was dress, it was speech, it was music, all of that combined. And that's what I saw had a relevance to bebop, because it was the same thing. It was dress, it was how you talked, it was where you went, it was how you spoke. And it was also going against the grain of society. So I like it for that. I'm not sure. I don't even know who's big in hip hop. Now, every time I tell people who really know about it, oh, yeah, this person's brand new and I think they're doing great. And they're like, oh, they are so old. That's like old school. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not confident anymore. Well, the cycle also,
1: it's it's interesting, right? The, the pace at which culture evolves, I think is quite fascinating because of technology. So as we think about the zeitgeist, you know, 50, 60 years ago, when there is a limited number of radio stations, there's a limited number of television stations, number one, there are many more gatekeepers who are going to say, this is what gets played, that's what people get exposed to, and thus, that's what folks started to say, oh, that's that's my style, that's the one I like. That's uh, right. They may not have even been aware of some of the other things. And now, with technology, you can have you know someone drop a song on a streaming service, and then some kid in South Korea is like, this is my thing. And uh, it's just fascinating how quickly it moves. And so to Mm -hmm. your point, yeah, there could be someone who 90 days ago, they had a Mm -hmm. hot song and someone's like, oh, no, we don't listen to that anymore. My my brain can't even process that. That's fascinating, right? Yes. But, you know, regardless of that pace, and uh, I think ultimately that will be a good thing because it will allow Mm -hmm. kind of, I think the right points of culture to spread. And many of those things are around some of those, those attributes we talked about, about, you know, (laughs) being free, you know, facing fear, you know, democratizing things. I want to get back to this, this connection on history. Recently, a number of hip hop artists have uh, passed away just this month. There's, you know, Black Rob, DMX, uh, Shock G, that's been happening in jazz for a long time, right? Obviously, yes. you have a number, you know, such such a rich history of individuals, but we all have our, you know, time under the sun. What's, what's your take on the best way to capture the richness of these artists' stories and their history beyond mm-hmm. the recording of their music?
0: Mm-hmm. That's a great way for me to try to think about the hip-hop artists. Now, the ones that you just mentioned, DMX, Rob and it was one more
1: shock G he was in Humpty Hump. Hump yeah he was uh, yeah. one of the early oh, producers okay. um, who I helped know. Tupac okay. yes
0: now I know who that is I've been saying I should know this young man but DMX is the one that that I knew the most because he is older he's like 50 or so and I just remember this song that I actually used to like call and I don't know what the title of it was but he said in there you don't know who we be Hmm. And and there was something about that that was so powerful. Right. And it was almost an affirmation. And so I really dug that a lot. So I'm not sure. It's a really great way for me to think about how do how do they live outside of the recorded music? And I'm not sure they would even want you to. Who is it? It was a jazz musician who said, when I'm dead, just keep playing the records. Ooh. I, I'm trying to remember who said that. He said, when I'm gone, just just play my records. Because right. most of the jazz musicians that I know put it all out there. It's really like it's like a snapshot in time. And so, for example, Randy Weston, who I'm, I'm the executor of his estate, uh, he died three years ago. But he started playing in the 50s in the Berkshires. And so he has maybe 70 recorded Albums. If you start in the fifties and just kind of go all the way through, you really get an idea of his whole life. You know, he was he was somebody as a jazz musician, but Langston Hughes wrote the liner notes for one of his albums. (laughs) Wow, it's just kind of amazing. Or when I was going through um, his file cabinet, this is before he passed away, and we were just going through, and I see a letter from Duke Ellington asking him. If he can buy his catalog. And I'm like, Duke Ellington wanted your catalog? When did that happen? And he he was just so humble about it. He's like, Oh yeah, that was, you know, in 1950, whatever. And so if I just listen to Randy Weston in a serial fashion, I'm gonna learn everything I need to know about him because he puts it in his music, in the song titles, in the music itself, in the instrumentation, you know, all of that. So That's the only way I think that you'll be able to tell from the hip hop artists is what are their song titles and what are they saying, which is why I have a particular disdain for some of the music that I'm hearing. And I don't even like to really call it music because it's all, some women say it's empowering them to talk about themselves like that. But I don't know if that's what they really mean about being empowered, that, you Mm -hmm. know, Right. I have a disagreement with it. I think there probably are some women who do agree with it. I don't I don't think that's empowering to talk about yourself in that way or to have men talk about you in that way, but I'm 73. What do I know?
1: <laughs> the interesting thing there is implicit in how you broke down, you know, that the journey of that, you know, I think many of these artists where you can just kind of follow their their, you know, their their recordings is that they have to be honest right they have yes. to be honest with themselves yes. and with their their audience and if that is true then the music they represent will be biographical right that's right
0: that's right
1: i, I was reading something um i don't remember not too long ago um on james uh, reese europe like mm-hmm. early days of jazz right <laughs> and uh, you know he was a lieutenant in the harlem Hellfighters uh, during right. World War One. I. I mean, you know all this. And he used that opportunity to lead a military band uh, to spread jazz. And, right. you know, he was pr- instrumental in promoting jazz as an art form around the world. And, you know, tragically, he was killed by his drummer. Right. I mean, it's like a movie within itself. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so I'm trying to decouple... To me, there's like two pieces of this. There is, how do you understand this artist? And to your point, I think you gave a fantastic answer. It's like, you go listen to their music. And in parallel, there feels like there's there's something around these, these personal stories, or at least these moments in history that any jazz fan you know should learn more about, right? How do you think about either periods in jazz or kind of these historical waves, you know, for someone it's like, you know, so what type of music do you like? Someone says, oh, you know, I I love jazz. Uh, (laughs) Then when you probe, like they don't know much, right? They don't know anything. (laughs) What are some of the big beats, the historical periods or or other things that you would say, well, here's the one-on-one. You got to be able to at least know about about these moments, these people, or, or et cetera. Well,
0: first of all, I have to say, I think it's so interesting that you followed up what I said by talking about James Reese Europe, because Randy Weston, who I had just spoken about, wrote a whole suite of music that was premiered at the Kennedy Center about James Reese Europe and his music. And then mm-hmm. Randy and his band wrote additional music in honor of James Reese Europe just the year before he died. So that was like four years ago. Wow. wow. And uh, what a lot of people don't know about him was that really he is almost single handedly responsible for bringing jazz to Europe. And they could not wear United States uniforms. A lot of people don't know that they had hmm. to wear French uniforms. And so even though they were from the Harlem Hellfighters, they when they got over there they had French uniforms and and those who died are buried in France. And they were all given medals of honor from France, not wow. the US. Wow. And it was way way many years after that that they were recognized in the US for the work that they had done. So, <laughs> I just see what we did there. I say, "Where yeah. you say James Rees Europe? It's like, how did that just happen? That of all the people you bring up, you would bring him up. But I think you have to know who he is. You have to know who Louis Armstrong is. You have to know who he is. You have to know who Duke Ellington is. I mean, he is the equivalent of European classical composers for jazz. Mm-hmm. He thought in an orchestral way. He thought in a very big way. So, when you listen to some of his, and you can go right down the line with Duke Ellington and say, okay, black, brown, and beige, what was he thinking about when he created that music? Uh, when he did Come Sunday with Mahalia Jackson, you know what he was thinking. You know exactly where he was. So, you must know Duke Ellington. You must know Louis Armstrong. You need to know Wynton Marcellus, I mean, because he kind of is part of the resurgence of jazz for many young people. I have more, but I can't imagine that that you wouldn't know Count Basie. You know, I can't. there's certain names, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughan, Carmen McRae, Betty Carter. You know, you have to know them because they struggled so hard, it wasn't easy. Jazz is still not easy. A lot of jazz musicians are still not making a, a great deal of money, but they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do anything else. I mean, I manage jazz artists. I'm a lawyer. I could be a lawyer for hip hop artists and make a whole lot more money, but I wouldn't enjoy it as much. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I do this because I'm meant to do it. I have to do it. I wouldn't be satisfied doing anything else. And that's the way jazz musicians are. So if you you have to know, you know, I've I've given you the vocalist. You you just have to know Lee Morgan and his tragic story. You have to, you know, how he was killed by his wife while he was at the club performing that night. But if, you know, also Ray Brown, who played with, um, was married to Ella at one point, but also who played with Oscar Peterson, you gotta know him, you know what I'm saying? So don't get me started.
1: Yeah, no, no, that's why I wanted to pull the thread to get you started.
0: Because it's just so many. And they have such fascinating stories, too. And it comes out in their music or in the music of those who love them. So I just I loved Lee Morgan. He had a song called A Waltz for Fran. And right now, till this day, if I hear a waltz for Fran, I get a feeling of how much he must have felt about Fran. I don't know who Fran is, mm-hmm. you know, but it's it's just that's why I like it. It's, it's, it's really deep and meaningful.
1: Yeah. No, fantastic answer. Now, I mean, you soaked up the industry, you've learned, you know, your genre, you've learned your craft. I'll break this up into two questions. First, what other professional paths in life did you consider?
0: None. And if I have to say that I have any regrets at all, it would be that. Like I'm I'm just sort of stuck. I don't know if that's the fire sign, I don't know what it is. But I'm the kind of person, if I put my furniture someplace, I leave it that way forever. <laughs> you know. And I was kind of like that with my career. And so I kind of regret that I didn't, didn't at least look around and see if there was something else I might want to do. But I don't think so. I mean, I'm really happy doing what I'm doing. Th- I don't feel like I was forced into this. I mean, I kind of right. feel like jazz found me and I found it and we're good.
1: Yeah, I mean, clearly your life experiences, you know, shaped your affinity for for music and specifically jazz. It, it is interesting that, you know, many folks struggle to commit to anything and then others, you know, they stay on track. And uh, as with many things, you know, finance, if you keep investing in something, you keep practicing, it compounds. You will become good at it. You know, what was the motivation for for you to stay on track? Like what you know, what is it about your personality that, you know, helped you stay focused?
0: So my motto is that I want to preserve jazz as an art form. That's actually the mission statement for my company. And so as an entertainment lawyer, I found that I was more on the law side and less on the music side. Like I could have been, entertainment law is essentially contract law and employment law you combine those two, really you're looking at entertainment loss, not much else if you break it down to its smallest components it's really those two things and things that kind of break out from there. And so people would come and bring me their contracts and I would look at them and negotiate them and charge them by the hour and get a check and they would go on. I was also doing litigation, which I enjoyed, but not as much. And finally, I was representing Betty Carter, who is a legendary jazz vocalist, and I'm, I'm honored to have worked with her. And I said to her, What is it that you all are doing? Like, you know, you take the contract and then you go off and have all the fun. It's like, I want to do that. And she said, well, that's management. That's Mm -hmm. not law. You know, if you were managing me, then you could. And I'm like, well, okay, that's what I want to do then. And right after that, I went with her to Boston and and she had a Boston Pops with David Amram conducting. And and I was all involved in the weeds as a man. I man I never managed her. But I learned about management through Betty Carter. And so that's what keeps me involved in it because it's the music. uh, The music actually feeds me. Mm -hmm. Literally and figuratively, it feeds me because I work. But also if I I could not be part of the creative process, I wouldn't be as happy. I'm, I'm actually a part. When I manage jazz artists, I always say to them, I never take lightly that you have put your career in my hands. Mm. That's an awesome responsibility. But it's also an honor. And I remember the first album I ever bought with my own money was Lambert Hendrix and Ross. Can you imagine how I felt when I got a chance to manage John Hendrix? Right. What? (laughs) That was, you know, those kinds of things just keep happening to me. So this is why I'm where I am.
1: Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Now, when we talked about some of those kind of key moments in jazz history and personalities. You mentioned Betty Carter. I was just listening to a performance of hers. Uh, It was Favorite Things and Mm -hmm. uh, it was just a live performance. And when you hear that emotion and you hear the expressiveness, like all those things, it it comes back to like, there is something about a great jazz artist that they really are free. And I think with I mean, you could see it, right? Like you feel the energy. Part of it is like, you know, the person who's just going today day, drudging through their crappy job, and they're just like, ah. And then you look at this person on stage, and you're like, huh? They're free. Right.
0: They're free,
1: right? And she was. Um, and so, she was one of your early, uh, earliest clients, I believe. What's a couple? In addition to exposing you to this other part of your career path, what are a couple the lasting things that you learned from her?
0: Not only was I her lawyer for a time, but I also had the honor and privilege of living with her in her house in 1983 three, from four, three, four to six months. It wasn't a long time. It was when I was leaving Chicago and moving to um, New York and until I could get situated. My son and I actually lived in our home. And so, you know, you've got somebody that you admire and you respect and you're in awe of, and then suddenly like you're waking up in the morning having coffee together. And that's weird because <laughs> mm. you get a chance to ask all these questions that you, you wouldn't normally. And so one of the things that I learned from her I remember we were talking about some project that she wanted me to work on and she said to me you know I'm Betty Carter but I'm really Lily Mae Jones because that was her 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 legal name Lily Mm. Mae Jones and she said so when you think about helping me I want you to think about Betty Carter like you would a 10 pound bag of potatoes it's a product I remember that so clearly. Like Hmm. So when you're talking about, you're not talking to Lily May when we're talking about what should we do for Betty Carter, what would be best for Betty Carter. That's the product, she said. And what I like is that you seem to be able to to know Lily May as well as Betty Carter, but don't get it twisted when you're my lawyer. It's all about Betty Carter and what's Hmm. good for the product. And so that kind of stuck with me back in the 80s and all the way till now even if people don't have you know pseudonyms the fact that that they view themselves as a product when they are performing in front of people but they also still have that other part of them that is is still free you know cuz that's when they're practicing or writing or or you know getting together with other musicians but they are There is a way to separate it in terms of the business, and I I like that about it. Another thing that I learned from her was that no matter what, the show must go on. And I remember so clearly when her brother died, I think, and she was on her way to Europe like the day he died, something like that. Hmm. And she said... I could not go, but if I missed the first gig, it was one of those things that would have tumbled, even though it was town after town. If you're not at the first place, you can't get to the second and then you can't get to the third. And she said, I love my brother. My brother knew I loved him. He loved me. I'm gonna get back home and be with the family as soon as I come back. But Betty Carter has to go and do this. I can- Lily Mae Jones can't stay here. And I understood it. and. Although I don't feel like that, I understood her point of view about that. So I learned that from her, that that's how she stayed as strong as she was, because she was no nonsense. One of the few women who had her own record label, she had Betcar Records, that I then licensed to Verve. I sold them to Verve on her behalf. And that's when she got nominated for her first Grammy, was when it, it came out on Verve. So I learned those two things, but but other things as well. She she was just great. The the primary thing, I think, is that she taught me that I have the skill, but she knows what she wants. So even though I'm the lawyer, she would say, you're the lawyer, but here's where I want you to end up. I don't know how to get there, <laughs> <laughs> but get me here. Right, and, right. And so that that's how I kind of approach things with my clients. You know where you want to go. I'm going to be the car that drives us there. You right. may not know the, the roadmap, but tell me where you want to end up and I'll get us there.
1: Well, that's smart Just, too, yeah. because it's so hard to optimize for you know something like the entertainment industry, which doesn't have a consistent blueprint. Uh, if you don't know your destination, you know, you're not going to be able to navigate in the first place. So that's great advice from her.
0: Yes, it was.
1: You started, correct me if I don't have the facts, correct here, what I believe was the first law firm in America with all Black women partners. Any advice, any business advice that you learned during your time running that firm that, you know, that stuck with you that you would share?
0: First of all, we didn't even set out to to make history. We didn't know we had. We were three friends who We're all working at jobs pretty much for the city, I think, and with legal services. And we would every day we'd be talking about how much we hated doing what we were doing. And we said, well, why don't we start a law firm? And we did. And then the American Bar Association reached out to us and said, we think you guys are the first all African-American female law firm in the country. No, they said in New York State. And we want to come and, and, you know, interview you. And I said, great. OK. And then they wrote us later on and said, no, it looks like you might be the only <laughs> one in the country. Wow. <laughs> we had no idea. There were mixed firms, you know, with male and female, but we were the first. We learned three things. There were three partners. And we decided that every decision we made had to be unanimous. Hmm. that if we had a two to one decision in terms of how we would run our firm, it would never work because that one person would always feel unheard, like it would feel sort of run over. Right. So we did that and we would fight and fight and fight and fight until we got it unanimous. And of course that meant cooperation and collaboration and sacrifice and giving up and things like that. But that was very good. And then finally, Betty, one of the partners, decided that she wanted to be a judge. And so she became a judge in family court. And I decided I wanted to be a manager. And, you know, I started doing a little bit of that. And Laverne, whose family were all in the medical field, her father had been a doctor and and her uncles were all doctors. And she decided she wanted to do something in health law. So that's what broke up the firm. Not that we weren't happy doing what we were doing. I was doing entertainment and Betty was doing family law and Laverne was doing healthcare, but we all kind of in a very friendly way split up and we're still friends till this day.
1: That's some great advice. So if I have the dates right, and correct me if I'm wrong. So you graduate law school, 75, entertainment law, 76. You start this firm mid eighties, around 85. You start Mm -hmm. looking at artist management early nineties, 91 or so. 91. As you've gone through that progression and you've also worked as a production coordinator. Is that correct? Yes.
0: Yes. About 15 or 16 albums at this point.
1: No, that's fantastic. And explain that for folks who don't know what that job is.
0: So I'm not the producer of the album, but what I will do is I'll find the studio. I'll hire the, the sidemen. I'll do the paperwork for the union. Forms that have to be submitted. I'll do the budget. I'll even go so far as ordering the food while they're there in the studio. Afterwards, I make sure that everyone is paid. I, I collect all the forms that have to be filled out, the I nines and the you know the W nines and all of that that has to be done, so that the producer is really there just to do the production work. I'm not, I'm doing everything that you know people think of as the producer's work. But really, I was doing all of that work, leaving them the freedom to just discuss music and sound and, you know, talk with the engineer and things like that. I did all the paperwork for that. So I did that on about 15 albums at this wow.
1: point. And I'll break this up in a couple of questions. First, clearly somebody could spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars on a project. But if you're paying people properly, what does it cost to do all those things, they what's the low end, right? To to get an, a jazz album recorded today, and oh. about how long does it take to to kind of pull it off in in days, weeks, or months?
0: So you could do if you paid everybody properly in terms of jazz, which is really way different than than R&B or or even gospel, because so much of it is organic. So it's not about going and doing a lot of remixing and and re-recording. A lot of it you want to get. You can do a whole jazz album in two days. Okay. You can do an entire jazz album in two days. Another two days to mix it, give your ears a rest. And then another day to master it. And then what do you want to do? You can At this point now, it used to not be, but at this point now you have a lot of jazz musicians releasing singles digitally. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you do the album later on or wh- whatever. But literally in, in four days, you can record and mix the album. You need to give yourself some time to go back and not hear it so that when you're mastering it, your ears are fresh. But in terms of cost there's so many inexpensive ways of even doing that now but let's say a record company i can see a $25,000 budget could easily do a jazz album if you're not dealing with superstars and like for example i have some clients that you could not do the album for 25,000 because of what i would charge for that client to be on that album right <laughs> but but if you've got new people young people un. Discovered talent, you know, like they might be bubbling, but it's still kind of under surface. Twenty five thousand, you could do it.
1: Wow! All right, so that means for artists who are banding together, I mean, that's still a lot of money for people who are just starting. That's right. Um, but that's they right. they could find a way to record something and and own it. They don't need permission. I mean. A lot of work for somebody to get 25000 but you start banding together, you start working together, collaborating, there's ways uh, and there's a path. So that's That's great That's
0: absolutely right. That's absolutely right. That's the way I encourage all the clients. I don't think I have any client right now on my roster who does not own their own masters. We might license them to a label, but we do the album, the artist owns it, and then I license it to a record company.
1: Hmm. Makes sense. So I want to switch to I want to stay on kind of uh, the the current day. We talked about some of the mechanics on the on the industry, right? So folks who are listening, you have the background of a of an entertainment attorney. You understand what it, it means to manage the artists, you know how to deal with all their personalities and <laughs> their hopes and dreams and, and all those things, the logistics of being a production coordinator. Let's switch to the consumer. Who would you say is the customer for jazz today?
0: Okay, that's really interesting because we always say that jazz is is dying or jazz doesn't have the, the reach and it doesn't have the reach that like a, a pop artist does. But if you have a, a jazz festival, for example, like Mod- the Monterey Jazz Festival, You'll get 25,000 people coming out to hear jazz artists. Yeah. So it's not dying, and, and, but, the, but it does skew older and it does skew white. I have been with my clients in a club playing and I'd be the only black person sitting there in the audience. Mm. So we're, we're losing some of the black audience. And I, that's one of my other goals is to, to increase that because it's our music. Jazz is synonymous with black American music. And so I I, I don't want to lose the people that, you know, kind of responsible because there are people coming up through their families who are going to be jazz musicians. I don't want to lose the audience. So our audience does skew older, does skew whiter, does skew a little bit like that. But then yet we have all these people coming up out of all these conservatories and jazz colleges so they still want to play jazz. It's very it's very interesting. Like, I can't imagine John Coltrane sitting in class and getting a degree in music theory.
1: <laughs>
0: I can't even picture that. But we have a lot of that going on now. And so who will that audience be? So we have to find worldwide, we can find the audience. Because most of my clients earn more money in Europe and Asia than they do in the U.S.
1: Yeah, no, I, I was on a work trip years ago in can and i didn't even know this was going on and we were you know it's some you know i, I was working in in technology at the intersection of digital music and mm-hmm. a buddy of mine said hey there's going to be some jazz artists at this hotel and we should just go pop in and
0: was it the roosevelt hotel
1: no this was what was the name of that t- that hotel it was we stayed uh, there's a funny side story where my boss at the time uh, went and pounded on the door of the the room next to him because they were making too much noise and 50 Cent opens up the door and, uh, or one of his people open up the door and said, hey, this guy wants us to turn it down. And then 50 <laughs> reaches around and just kind of gives my old boss a look. And uh, he was oh, like, oh, well, do what you well, do, well, what you know. Uh, <laughs> <right."> <laughs> but that particular hotel, and I'm forgetting these names, It Uh was super French where there was like no shower and (laughs) it was one of these trips where I had never been in a room like this where you had to press the button to like get the hot water going. And I was like, how are all these people taking this cold bath like shower? Because it was like this little thing that would drip on you and it wasn't modern at all. Nevertheless, (laughs) Uh, a few blocks up, I don't remember the, the place, but I don't think it was that hotel. There was okay. a very modern one, and that's where I would go for breakfast. We were there okay. for a uh, two-week conference that, I don't know if they still have it, it was called Madem, and this is where- Yeah, it yeah, up. yeah, they have Yeah, Medem. yeah, okay. And so we went into this hotel, and it was just packed, and the energy was crazy, and there were so many different little pockets. So there was a main room. I think foreplay was in that room that night. Okay. And and then, but there are all these weird experimental, small side rooms that someone had set up just enough. And it turned out that this was, you know, a much bigger deal than I knew. I was just getting educated on it. But the energy and the, fandom isn't the right word, but just how drawn the audience was and how connected they were, it was just magic. And it was one of those like serendipitous moments where I just stumbled into something. And Mm -hmm. it was just really fantastic. And, uh, yeah, my brain hadn't thought like, oh, I'm going to go to some random trip in Europe and kind of watch, you know, this international crowd kind of get, you know, (laughs) wowed by largely American jazz musicians. It was fantastic.
0: In England, they still dance to jazz. They don't do that here. They still dance. I mean, like the free jazz. They dance mm-hmm. to even free jazz. It's like, I really want to bring that back because, you know, that's that's really where it's at.
1: I want to see that on TikTok. Yeah. You could, there we you'll go.
0: find it, I'm sure.
1: Free jazz TikTok. Okay. A couple things before we wrap up. You have this uh, acronym called PRICE. Performing, yes. recording, innovating, composing, educating. And yes. you want- all of the artists that you represent to bring you know all of those or most of those to the table i wanted to touch on innovation because that that has such a a broad impact on other folks not just you know jazz artists Mm -hmm. i believe and correct me if you would love to hear if you disagree that we tend to be better at innovation when we number one know who we are Mm -hmm. and we're not afraid of being ourselves right you know that that example i was calling out with uh uh, some of the other artists. Right. What advice do you give to artists who, you know, they may be looking to you to represent them or whatever, and, and you're looking, you're evaluating them on your acronym and you're like, oh, they don't have the innovation. They're struggling on that point. And, you know, they're they're still trying to find themselves mm-hmm. and or face their fears, right? Like they're yes. not ready to be free. What advice do you give to those those artists so they can find their path? They
0: have to really deep inside themselves and play or sing what they're hearing. Because if they're not able to do that, it's not going to be genuine and I'm not going to be moved because you're not giving me you. I had a client one time who, who asked me, well, what should my next album be? And I said to him, I have absolutely no idea because it has to come from you. I'm the manager. I'm gonna manage what you give me. Mm-hmm. But I don't wanna start telling you. And and at some point my assistant said, you know, this person wants to be famous more than he wants to be good. Mm. And that that is what I I've started using that when I talk to people about the I and in innovation really does mean what are you hearing? Like you can take a jazz standard, nobody can play. Some of the songs that John Coltrane is famous for, better than John Coltrane did them. Mm-hmm. So if you come up as a saxophonist, I don't want you to just play what John Coltrane played because I got his album. I'm gonna, mm-hmm. get, but I want you to then say, okay, so I heard Crescent, and what does that mean to me? And dig deep down inside, and then out of that innovate do something different if it's instrumentation maybe you're playing exactly what he played but maybe you're using harp and you know uh banjo <laughs> with your saxophone right that's innovative you know because i want to know what you're thinking what you're hearing and that's that story that gets told exactly your that's how it ties music. back
1: when it's that's I how it ties back that's that magic though right because those you know i don't know if they call it the discography anymore but whatever your your history of your recordings are they will be a biography if you're being honest. And that's right. And so if you're not honest, then you're not going to get to that point where you can't innovate, that anyone cares to listen to what you're putting that's out in right. the first place.
0: Because I could care less if you're just going to repeat something I've already heard, because I really love chess. I listen to it a lot. So if you're going to just play for me something I've already heard, I don't want to manage you because I don't know what to say to somebody when I call. Mm. Uh, You need to hear this person. They play exactly like John Coltrane. That's not going to get them sold. But if I say like Lakeisha Benjamin, my artist just did, she did a whole tribute to John and Alice Coltrane and she rearranged every single song. Mm. That's innovative. Yeah. It's their music. Right, right. So that that kind of thing. I think you just, it all, it, you know, it's really like life itself. And that is what's in here. And, and let's not be afraid to bring it out because that's your gift that God gave you. Artists have that special gift. I really do think we all have gifts, but I think artists, and that's musicians and fine artists and, and whether you sculpt or dance or any of those things, I think that the creator gave you a special gift to tell the story of your generation. So you've got a responsibility, not just to yourself. Mm. You gotta tell the truth. You gotta tell the story if you're gonna be a true artist. And so that's where that innovation comes from. I mean, I can see people dance like Martha Graham, but Martha Graham already danced like Martha Graham. Right. But what are you doing? And then I can get hung up in it. And that's that's how I would like to see it in.
1: Yes. As we talk about that creativity, so you know, let's say now the artist has found and figured out who they are. They they have, you know, been able to face their fears and they're, they're free. And I think in, you know, times like this, especially with like the pandemic, I think we're going to have an explosion of creativity, right? As yes. uh, we, we come out of this. So I'm not concerned about the creativity portion, but, but question for you, what do you think is the business opportunity for those artists as we come out of the pandemic?
0: I think we have to, I don't want to go back to normal. And when people talk about the new normal, I'm not too fond of that either, as they describe it. I think it's time for a real reset, Hmm. because I think if there's been anything that musicians have learned over this pandemic is that the music that they create benefits everybody except them in a very real way. Because what happened when all my tours got canceled between March 13th and March 20th, I lost every tour I had on the books. Every single one. Mm. I haven't made a dime (laughs) since March. Whatever. And so I've got. Seven artists, eight artists on my roster. None of them is working. All of them have boxes and boxes and boxes of CDs in their homes because they were making money on their music by going out on the road and selling CDs on the road. Right. Because streaming doesn't favor jazz musicians at all. With that 0. 0.0002 cents you get for a stream, and then jazz musicians are going around bragging, saying, I had 40,000 streams. I'm like, yeah, that'll be about 50 bucks. <laughs> you know, right. They weren't making money. But the people who owned the masters were. So the record companies are all making money because they partially own the streaming companies in in large. But they also have the ability to make better deals Hmm. than individuals. So I don't want to get a new normal that does not bring a little more parity for income into jazz musicians pockets because they are not doing very well. I started an organization called Alternative Venues for Jazz because the median income for for jazz musicians was less than twenty thousand dollars a year. Wow. Now there are some who make a whole lot more, but there are some who are not making even that. So when when I still see clubs offering $100 per musician to come in and entertain you all night long, we gotta do a reset because it's not working.
1: Right. Now I did want to touch on that. So you started this, uh, I think it's like a, it's a Facebook group or a community. Mm-hmm. And when you started it, I think, again, correct me if I don't have this right it was more of this community for jazz artists to uh, kind of share tips on how yeah. to think about different ways to to find their audience. And it's evolved now into an actual destination. What keeps you excited about that work? Is this, is this your yes. E in your part? Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's my E. It's my I too. Um, yes. What, yeah. It's what, innovative. What I did was, in 2017, I, I moderated a panel at Jazz Congress called "Alternative Venues for Jazz," and the whole point of it was to explore other things than everybody trying to get a a, a week at the same jazz club because it's only 52 weeks in a year, mm-hmm. and there are way more jazz artists than that. So I start I started the page to say hey, if you found some place where you can work that's not a jazz club or a festival, tell us about it. So you could not advertise your own gig. You could not come on there and play piano. You couldn't do anything like that. It was purely conversational. And then the pandemic hit. And suddenly I thought, this is the ultimate alternative venue because there's no place for them to play. So I said, you know what? Bring your stuff. If you want to stream a concert from your bedroom, do it on this page. I don't care. And people started doing that. So I went from 1,500 members to now close to 7,000. Wow. And then I decided in in April last year, I said, maybe we need to just tell each other stories so that we can maintain community. So I put out a, a, a Facebook post and said, anybody want to tell their story for a half an hour, just let me know. I'll do it like once a month i got like almost 50 people saying, yeah, I'd love to do it. So I thought, okay, if I do once a month, it'll take four years. I hope the pandemic doesn't take that long. (laughs) I know what I'll do. I'll do it daily. So I've been doing five days a week. I have a musician or or an industry person come on at five o'clock and they tell their story for half an hour and, and it goes out. And so now... On any given day, depending on who the artist is, by the end of the week, as many as 7000 people will have heard it and sometimes more.
1: Right. That's fantastic. I'll make sure that a link to that group uh, is shared in the show notes for anyone who wants to uh, find that. One of the things I've heard you mention in that group is, you know, you want to push artists to raise questions that maybe an interviewer in another venue, you know, hasn't asked them. What question should I ask you that I haven't?
0: Ooh, let's see. (laughs) (laughs) Am I ever going to retire?
1: (laughs) Are you? I mean, you're busy.
0: (laughs) I'm going to die with my boots on.
1: (laughs) I love the energy. And you know, I, I think that energizes you. Right. I mean, I can, you know, you're doing something that you're passionate about, you're yeah. always going to see different angles to share it with new people or think about how to present it differently. So. So that's fantastic. Last big question for you. So let's rewind all the way back to the beginning. Okay. What do you yeah. think your eight year old version of yourself would think about your journey so far?
0: The eight year old would be very surprised at my level of energy because the eight year old had heart trouble and couldn't do gym and couldn't do a lot and always had to sit and be quiet. I had surgery at 12, so I'd never play- played sports. And I just did four and a half miles walking today. So the eight year old would be looking and saying, is that me? Get it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So and and also the 80 year old would say, OK, so you wanted to be a lawyer and that's not what I had in mind. But go, Gail.
1: Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Gail, thanks for joining us today and sharing your story.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And thank you uh, for having me. It was it was a lot of fun.
1: And uh, we'll make sure that we have the link to uh, alternative venues for jazz. Any other places online where folks can find you?
0: They can find me on jazzcoalition.org if they want to to see some of the musicians that we commissioned to do the music on the pandemic and, and social justice. Napama.org, which is the North American Performing Arts Managers and Agents of which I am president. So you can find me there. I think that's about it.
1: Okay. You know, I just want to recap with one of the things you said that I think concisely helps us be more thoughtful of how we interact with each other. You know with so many different ways that we could be divisive or just find ways to nitpick and not come together you take a good you know set of jazz artists and they look at all the differences they figure out how to riff on that and they just get down to it And in your words they just say let's just make this music yes. right and uh, we just gotta i think get to getting on so great advice fantastic conversation Thanks to everyone else out there who's listening and joining us today with our conversation with Gail Boyd. We hope you've enjoyed your time. Uh, As usual, please leave a great review wherever you listen to our show. I'm LaShawn, thanks again. And remember, dream big, stay curious, and always share your true voice. See you next time.
0: This is True Voice.